All right, good morning, church. So we're going to study his word. I hope you got one of these, a Bible. Open it up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, if you would. Isaiah chapter 11, as we keep walking through chapter after chapter of these ancient words of prophecy, 750 years before Christmas morning, Isaiah saw it coming from a long way off because uh, God inspired him to write these words. And I, I hope we come away with some of the significance of it in a fresh way for our lives this Advent season. All right, I'm gonna read to us from Isaiah 11, starting in verse one through verse 10. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze and their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious." So I know we've already sung, but I want to invite us together to sing again. There's a Christmas carol that was written back in 1868, and I want us to notice as we sing this familiar song together for just a moment, notice what this carol says about darkness and light. You ready? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shine the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Well, that was lovely. Did you notice what it said? In thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Christmas is darkness overpowered. Advent, Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, is darkness dethroned. And dethroned is a fitting image. Apostle Paul, when he's writing in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter one, he would say this, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's almost darkness is with a capital D. It has a domain, it's a king. 
darkness is personified. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the apostle, notice there, he's personifying darkness. Darkness has a kingdom and Christ has a kingdom. But Paul doesn't leave it there. If he left it there, what we have is a philosophy called dualism, which is kind of the light and the dark, yin and yang, you know, they're battling it out. We'll see who wins because they have equal power. No, the apostle Paul doesn't leave it there because he said the idea of Colossians 1.14 is that King Darkness rules over a fading empire and his grip is losing strength. King Darkness has citizens, but they're more like prisoners. And what God is doing through Jesus Christ, now that Jesus has ascended and he's seated on the throne at the right hand of God, God is plundering Darkness's kingdom pulling citizens, prisoners out of one kingdom and putting them into the kingdom of his son, taking them out of darkness and placing them into a kingdom of light. And this can happen because of the mystery of the gospel that in the darkness outside Jerusalem, Jesus was doing something deeply ironic and wonderful. In the darkness outside Jerusalem on the cross, Jesus was unseating darkness, removing its power. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, 750 years before Christmas morning, God says, let me tell you three things about the king when he comes. Number one, the king's ancestry. So we learn something about the king's ancestry. Just look down in your Bible, verse one, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Now that's loaded language that assumes that we, like uh, Isaiah's original audience, that we are familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with characters of the Old Testament. So for example, Jesse, let's just start there. Rather than assuming we all know who Jesse is, Jesse is the father of David. And David was Israel's greatest king and protector. So Jesse's not known necessarily for anything Jesse himself did, except that he sired kings. He sired the greatest king. He, he sired Israel's greatest warrior, Israel's most famous hero. So David was kind of everything balled into one. All the awesomeness you could imagine kind of rolled into one person. He was a musician, poet, warrior, ruler, king. So he's kind of Andrew Peterson, Robert Frost, Stevie Ray Vaughan, William Wallace, kind of all rolled into one person. He's, he's got all those things going on. And Jesse gets to say, that's my son. <laughs> I, right? So he's, he's the father of of David. So that, that gets at the Jesse part, but what's the stump of Jesse? If you're taking notes, the stump of Jesse would have brought this meaning home to the people, the end of the line, suffering with no end in sight. So there was no time in Israel's history where she was more secure or happy than when David was on the throne. When Jesse's son was on the throne, there was peace. And then when David's son, Solomon, was on the throne, there was peace. So you got 80 years, the golden era of the entire Old Testament is about 80 years long. That's peak Old Testament history. And so if a standing tree represented the lineage of Jesse, then a felled tree represented total collapse for the Old Testament people of God. The, the felled tree of Jesse means we're done, we're toast because God promised that he would always have a son from David's line sitting on that throne and now the throne's toppled over, the palace is in charred ruins and so that means God has finally said, enough with you, I'm done with you. I persisted with your rebellion long enough. I'm rescinding my promises and we're done here. 
And so that stump of Jesse, that, that's not a hypothetical reality that Isaiah is talking about. That's about how it went down. A little bit later, you keep fast forwarding through history, you're about 750 BC when Isaiah writes this, fast forward to 586 BC, Babylon rolls into town, rolls into the city of David, wrecks the place, kicks the throne over, takes Zedekiah, uh, David's great, 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 great grandson, so he's the last one there in the, in the tree of Jesse, and he takes Zedekiah off the throne, and then he kills all of Zedekiah's sons, so the heirs of the Davidic throne are all slain in front of Zedekiah's eyes, and then he takes Zedekiah's eyes. So in effect, the last thing that the last heir of David's line ever saw was the stump of Jesse that Isaiah prophesied about 150 years before. The dynasty of David chopped down, and it's the last thing blazed in his memory. It's a dark, dark day. You want to see how dark that day was? There's a book in your Old Testament called the Book of Lamentations. And that's Jeremiah the prophet walking around the city right after Babylon rolled in. And he's got a video camera in his hands. And he just shows you all the wreckage of what he saw when the stump of Jesse was felled. So Isaiah prophetically saw the stump creating event. But he also saw something else, namely a shoot growing from the stump of Jesse. What would this have communicated to the original audience? Maybe it's not over. Right? There's, there's life popping up out of what seemed to be death. So we've seen how the story of Advent all through this month, how the story of Advent is all about the God of the plot twist. So the Old Testament ends on a note of darkness. There is no sun on David's throne. At the end of book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, there's no sun on David's throne. And then you flip the page, the last page of the Old Testament. Then there's a blank white page between your Old and New Testament. Then you flip the page again to the first page of the New Testament. And here's how Matthew's gospel opens. Page one of your New Testament, first words, quote, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So what's Matthew doing in the opening words of his gospel? He's saying, look, a shoot from Jesse's stump. A sprig, it's tiny, it doesn't look like much, but there's life sticking up out of death, out of what we thought was completely over, and yet there's life. It's Matthew pointing at the manger and humming a Christmas carol. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. That, that's a carol about the dethroning of an old king who's losing his hold on the world now that Jesus has come. Back here in Isaiah, in our text, where there's more tree chopping that's gonna happen here in this passage because right before we see the felled stump of Jesse's line and right before we see the shoot that's sticking up out of it, which is really exciting prospect, right? We see a mighty tree at the end of chapter 10 and that mighty tree is called Assyria. And so you see the mighty tree of Assyria standing at the end of Isaiah chapter 10, and then you see entering from stage right, as it were, a divine lumberjack. You see someone who is identified as God, and he's got an axe in his hand as he enters the scene. God's going to come at the end of Isaiah 10, in the beginning of Isaiah 11, and he's going to resurrect the tree of Jesse, and he's going to cut down the tree of Assyria. And this is Advent news. Here's how it reads, Isaiah 10, verse 32. Today, the Assyrians will stand at Nob. It's almost like Isaiah saying, don't blink. The tree's standing. The mighty empire of Assyria is standing, but don't blink. 
Today the Assyrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fist at the mountain of daughter Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. God, he, is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. What is God saying through the prophet Isaiah? He's saying the trees of human powers arrayed in rebellion against God are coming down. Isn't it interesting that in the pages of the New Testament, the forerunner to Jesus is a man named John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist rolls out the red carpet to introduce the world to Jesus the Christ, what metaphor does he reach for? to signify what it means now that he's here. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, verse 10 says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. And John the Baptist goes on to say, the fruit that God wants is humility and repentance and every tree that doesn't bear that fruit is gonna fall. That's the advent were, it's almost like this is the greatest mixing of metaphors in world history because you start to realize Jesse's twig in Isaiah 11 and the divine lumberjack in Isaiah 10 are the same person. Jesus Christ is the king and he comes to dethrone darkness. Isaiah 11 verse 1 is Christmas morning. You're looking in the manger and it doesn't look like much. It's just a sprig sticking up out of what used to be a mighty tree. But give it time and watch this space. Important things are going to develop right here from Bethlehem and beyond. So we see the king's ancestry. Second, the king's attributes. So we first met this ideal kingly figure when we studied Isaiah 9 two Sundays ago, but now we're given a fuller picture of what the king is going to be like here in this passage, and you see the first thing is the spirit rests on him. He fears the Lord and possesses true wisdom. So Isaiah says, when the Messiah arrives on the scene, the first thing you're going to notice is he's wise beyond his years. I'm not talking about somebody who's just gonna have great test scores. He's not just gonna be super smart. He's gonna be extraordinarily wise. He, when he speaks, everybody's gonna shut up. There's gonna be a heft about his words that stun crowds. They're gonna say, none of the scribes that we've ever heard talk like him. His words bear a weight. You remember in Luke chapter two, one of the only passages in the New Testament where we see something about the childhood of Jesus. And what's the first picture we get of the childhood of Jesus? They found him as a little boy. He had been separated from his family. And we read these words in Luke two. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with his people. So you read through the pages of the Gospels and you have these constant deja vu moments. If you've read through the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, it's like, we read that somewhere, that he would come and there would be noticeable wisdom. There's noticeable wisdom. He's just a kid, but there's noticeable wisdom. And, and didn't Isaiah say the spirit of God would rest upon him? And then Jesus preaches in Luke chapter four, his very first sermon. And what are the opening words of his very first sermon? The spirit of the Lord rests upon me. 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's deja vu again and again and again. Maybe this is the one Isaiah was talking about a long, long time ago. Isaiah says in our passage, he's gonna be marked by the fear of the Lord. That's to say, his whole life is gonna be consumed with zeal for God. Trust in God. He's gonna listen to God's words. He's gonna live by them. He goes on in verse three, you see in verse three, he, when he arrives, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. Is it any coincidence that when you fast forward to the life of Jesus, he says things like this in John seven. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather judge according to righteous judgment. He, he sees to the heart of things and he contends for the weak. That's the picture that Isaiah is developing of this future king who's gonna dethrone darkness. He's gonna see to the heart of things and he's gonna contend for the weak. Jesus, he, he didn't merely see things, he saw through things. There's a, um, a detective series produced in the early 1970s called Columbo, and uh, it's pretty much the greatest TV ever made. Uh, I own every episode, and our kids have been subjected to watching it over the years, multiple times, every episode. We're, we're like Columbo scholars in my house. Uh, well, there's, the interesting thing, if you've ever watched Columbo, is um, the murderers are always the most charming people. You would never suspect that this person in front of you could possibly be a killer, and yet Columbo knows it almost from the word go. Like he meets the person and he's like, you're the one. Uh, that's why I'm gonna hang out with you for this entire show is because you're the killer. For example, there's one episode we've watched many times where there's this sweet, elderly, tiny woman. We've got a picture of her. There she is with Columbo, and uh, Look, she looks really sweet and small and everything. She's a cold stone killer. Like her nephew-in-law, she locked him in an airtight safe that was soundproof. And she talked smack to him right before she closed the door. And then she left and she gets on her own jet and they say, how are you doing? And she says, never been better. I mean, it's like really dark. Her, that lady right there. But Columbo, he sees right through it, right? Well, there, there's a sense in which you read through the pages of the Gospels, and Jesus is doing that left and right, all over the place. He's seeing through stuff. People, they say, have you heard our leaders when they pray? Man, how do you do that? How do you talk to God with such like, profound theology? And how do you weep tears every time you open your mouth and address the God of heaven? And they're going on and on and on about the prayers that they hear, and, and Jesus is their lips are moving, but their hearts are a million miles away from God right now. And he doesn't just tell the crowds, he looks at the prayer himself and says, your lips are moving, but your heart is a mile away from God. He, he sees, he's not duped by outward show, by outward appearance, he, he sees to the heart of things. Not only that, he, like we said a moment ago, he contends for the weak. He, he runs to the helpless people, you read him in the Beatitudes and he's just giving out gifts. And who gets to receive the gifts? And he says, this one says, you shall inherit the earth. And he says, and I'm going to give this to the meek. And I'm going to give this blessing of the kingdom of heaven to 
The poor in spirit. Anybody poor in spirit, come, this gift is free. He's given the gifts to all the powerless people. Christianity is the only religion on earth where you qualify by realizing you can't qualify. Christmas is the best news imaginable for people who feel weak, people who feel powerless in the world, people who can't pull their act together. Christmas is for us. You look at the attributes of this king and you think about the world of darkness that not just they lived in, but the world of darkness that we live in. Who doesn't want what Isaiah is laying out for us? The king that Isaiah promises would come and is available for us. Who doesn't want a king like this? Wisdom drips from every word that he speaks. He runs with compassion to people who can't pull their, themselves together. He's compassionate and gracious and merciful and strong. He, conquers the dark things that are hounding us in our lives. He, that's the next point. He subdues and conquers all our enemies. There's a conquering motif shot through this language of the arrival of the king. You look in verse four. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. And you read in the gospels, you look at the ministry of Jesus and you watch him conquering death and darkness and demons and disease. He touches lepers and he doesn't catch their leprosy, they catch his wholeness. Like everything we expect to happen isn't happening. He's flipping the script in the world. He's showing us the powers of the age to come. He's showing us what things will be like when the kingdom of God comes in fullness, in full strength. No disease, no sin, no pain, no death. Today, the enemy is still wreaking havoc in our world. That's, that's not an old thing. That's a very present reality. But God will triumph in the end. God never breaks a promise, and he will triumph over every evil that hounds us in this world. That's why one of the Christmas carols says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Tired, a tired world hounded by evil and darkness rejoices when Jesus gets here. I understand the significance for you personally this morning. Friend, this morning, don't look to any other source for rescue. The one rescuer was sent and he came. Trusting in him, we find life. Outside of him, there's only death. There can only be death. He named himself the resurrection and the life. So lay, lay your guilt, lay your shame, lay your sin, all of it, stack it at the foot of the cross. That's the glory of the good news of the gospel. Lay your self-righteous pride there at the foot of the cross as well. While you're laying stuff, lay it all down. Find the friend that we have in Jesus. Bring your burdens to a sovereign God who triumphs over evil. This kingdom will triumph over evil. This kingdom will bring, Isaiah talks about, everlasting peace. Our text gives us a picture of, of total and perfect serenity, the absence of violence. The lamb lays down with the lion. Martin Luther, when he was commenting on this text in the 16th century, he said, if the lamb lays down with the lion today, you'll have to keep replacing that lamb. <laughs> That's the way of things in our world today but there's this picture of complete and total serenity, the absence of violence. You see in verse nine, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. 
we sing a, a Christmas carol that says, in his name, in Messiah's name, all oppression shall cease. I don't think that the, uh, this is an interpretive question, I don't think that all the language of wolves, lambs, leopards, goats, calves, young lions, all being together, children with their hands in a snake's pit, um, I don't think it's actually talking about animals. I think it's talking about people. Because just a moment ago, the twigs were people. The stumps were people. So the plants were people. And now I think the animals are people. I think verse six to nine, I think it's a promise of what happens when Jesus' kingdom comes in fullness. Human oppression in all of its forms will be no more. It's the putting down of all oppression in the world. You just think about human history. Human history, one historian said this about 50 years ago. He said, you wanna know what history is in one phrase? It's a butcher's block. History's a butcher's block. Um, if you've ever read Lord of the Flies, I'd never read that book till last year. I was like, oh, no wonder it's a classic. It's a really interesting book. Lord of the Flies, you ask the question, what is the Lord of the Flies book about? Is it a fictitious story about what happens when boys run loose on an island? Or is it a parable of the story of the world? And the answer is yes. <laughs> It's both. Matter of fact, William Golding, the writer, said it was. He said, I'll tell you why I wrote Lord of the Flies, because of stuff I saw rising up in Nazi Germany right in front of my eyes. He said, I know why the thing arose in Germany. I saw, he said, here's a quote, I used to believe in the perfectibility of man, but he goes on to say, now I know man produces evil like a bee produces honey. And so he writes this book that seems fictitious, but he says it's actually just the story of our world. Christmas is not sentimental, it's deeply relevant. It's God coming in in business attire and he's coming to conquer evil. He's coming to dethrone, to unseat darkness. The darkness of sin and all the junk sin brought with it when it came into this world. That's what Advent's about. It's not syrupy, it's a solution. The king's ancestry, the king's attributes, and finally the king's acclaim. The king's acclaim. And here's where our passage reaches its, its full crescendo. In verse nine, the result of Advent for the land or the earth, it could be translated, the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. And this is God writing through the prophet Isaiah to say when Messiah gets here and when he's seated at God's right hand on the throne, his kingdom will come breaking into planet earth and nothing can stop him. Try as they may, nothing can stop him. Therefore, so two kind of take home therefores. Number one, believe the good news and never despair. So Advent reminds us that the future God has written for you if you are in Christ is a future of victory. It's a future of victory. Christianity is neither triumphalistic nor defeatist. So Christianity is not triumphalistic in the sense that we don't achieve the victory by our own morals, we don't achieve the victory by our own methods. 
So it's not triumphalistic, but it's not defeatist. Equally, Christianity is not defeatist because Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's on the throne. He rules the world with truth and grace and watch the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Hang on a minute and you'll see it. Christianity, as P.T. Forsyth said a generation ago, Christianity is not the victory we win, it's the victory we inherit because we're united to him by faith. You know, this week in our culture, we heard news about a man, a well-known man uh, who took his life, ended his life in suicide. There are people in this room, perhaps, who have been touched by that story, maybe in family, maybe in friends, people close to you. There are a lot of tired people in this world who get to a place where they feel like they're backed against the wall and there's no hope for me, there's no future for me, I've got no options left. Here's the wonderful thing about Jesus, and Isaiah talked about it first. He said, he won't be the type of ruler who comes and breaks a bruised reed, a a reed or a a branch that feels it's it's broken at a critical place and it's just gonna fall and break off. He's gonna heal it right where it's broken. He won't break a bruised reed. He says, he won't put out a a flax that's just smoldering. It's just this ember that seems like it's just about to die and Jesus doesn't look at the ember and just say, you're not giving off any heat, you're done. That's, That's not the kind of Christ that he would be. He would tenderly, patiently nurse that ember back into flame. It's a beautiful picture. And what's that picture deliver to us in the Advent season? It delivers this. Anybody here who's struggling with hopelessness, who struggles with despair, Advent brings really good, timely news. And it's this, Jesus is a friend to tired people. I I pray even this morning as we look at this wonderful old passage that you will hear God addressing you where you are right now and saying, listen, you have a future. You have a hope. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who pursues you even after you thought you burned all the bridges between you and him. You have a God who speaks worth over you even when you feel completely worthless. You have a gospel. You have good news. Good news. A weary world can rejoice now that Christ is here. And Jesus is coming. You don't even need big faith to lay hold of him. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, someone has said, but by the object of our faith. And the object of your faith is Jesus. And he is mighty, even when we're not. All the times that we're not mighty. Christ is the object. We're often shaken. Okay, it's another day. Life in this world, we're often shaken. He's not shaken. He is immovable. Believe the good news and never despair. Second, spread the word for the joy of all nations. Darkness is a tenacious presence in the world, but so is light. Light is tenacious as well. So just a brief walk through history since Christmas morning. Herod, 
tried to snuff out the light, but he failed. The light of Christ, the Christ child there in the manger seems so small, right? By contrast with the greatness and shine uh, bling of the Roman Empire, Christ's light seems so small, but when the lights of the Roman Empire went out, guess who was still shining? Jesus was still shining. The persecutions of the early church tried to snuff out the light of the church of Jesus Christ. Didn't work. The light kept shining. Then we entered into a period literally called the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages didn't snuff out the light of the gospel. It came and went. Gospel light persisted. Then we entered into a period called the Enlightenment, which threatened to obscure, threatened to even eclipse the light of Christianity. Matter of fact, Voltaire even said, one of the great voices of the Enlightenment period, and he announced Christianity only has a few years left. Its death rattle can be heard by all. It's a dying religion, ironically. 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his former house and used his printing presses to print thousands of Bibles. That's called a cruel irony. 20th century, communism tried to snuff out the light in Russia and China. I read a book a few years ago by a Chinese journalist who's, by the way, not a believer, a dissident Chinese journalist. And he wrote a book called God is Red, the secret story of how Christians survived and flourished in communist China. The results are in at the turn of the 21st century. There were more believers in Russia and China than, than, than there had ever been before. Everywhere the gospel takes root, the light shines. We don't talk about Global offering, particularly this time of year, we don't talk about global offering in order to guilt anybody to give to the cause of gospel advancement. It's not like, hey, if you don't do this, you know, like God's gonna come get us. Uh, it, it's not a if you don't or else. It's a, we, we get to send the light? The light that's changed our lives into darkness. God sent light and the light found me. In the grace of God, the light found me. What am I gonna do? Keep it to myself? No, let it shine. Send it. Send the song of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we do when we give to global offers. It's not a program. Missions is what we do by readying the world for the coming of the Lord. It's an awesome, grave, and glad thing. There's a global offering moment at the end of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, it's literally a global offering moment because he says, I want you to resource the advancement of the gospel so the word of the gospel can make it to Spain. Literally, there's an offering plate attached to the letter. And to motivate that group of believers, Paul quotes four Old Testament passages in Romans 15, and guess what one of them is? Isaiah chapter 11. He writes in Romans 15, 12, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles and the nations or the Gentiles will hope in him. When, when Paul thinks of unreached people groups who haven't heard the gospel, his mind runs to the root of Jesse that Isaiah talked about 750 years before Christmas morning. And, and then his mind runs forward to the one to whom all nations will give their worship. He's saying, Ruta Jesse, Isaiah was onto something. 
And then you fast forward to the very end of the Bible. I mean literally the last chapter, the last page of your Bible. It's the pinnacle of history. Jesus stands at the pinnacle of history and how does he identify himself? Revelation 22, verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Translation, there's only one person in history who at last has the power to dethrone darkness and his name is Jesus. Jesus stands at the pinnacle of history and says, when you were looking for the root of David, you were looking for me. I have the power to dethrone darkness. You know, here's the beautiful thing. It's not just to Bethlehem that the Savior came. We sing that in the Christmas carol that we began with earlier, but he comes to whatever street you're on, whatever town you're in. And so I hope even this morning there's a reminder from Advent and you hear God sending good news to your home address. In thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Let's, let's believe this good news and let's send this good news.